Hey everybody, welcome back to Terminus, the Destroy All Humans of Extreme Metal podcasts. I am the Death Metal Guy, aka Blake Judd Kickstarter Stretch Goal, actually receive the product. And I am the Black Metal Guy, aka One Hour of Penis Slapping, please. <laughs> Where do you order that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're phrasing it like you're at a front counter, like requesting <laughs> the service. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe in the Netherlands. Ah, uh, it's that I I can imagine that you know, you know it's one of the uh, one of the Western European states I haven't been to, and at this mm. point I think that my my idea of it in my head is probably more fun than reality. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Well, it's um, you know uh, Netherlands. What is it? Amsterdam? The Austin Amsterdam. What what is it? Amsterdam being to sex what Austin is to indie rock. <laughs> Very nice. Well, and also it's like you know. The, I don't know. I've never been to. I've barely ever been to. I've maybe been to the airport. I know fucking nothing about Amsterdam. I feel like somehow that was a joke. Last, I feel like somehow there was a Netherlands joke last week too. I don't know why. I fucking love Dutch black metal, but hey. <laughs> we, we but we resent the Dutch as people. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think a lot of the allure of the Amsterdam trip has uh, <laughs> has basically disappeared now that weed is de facto legalized in the U.S. Yeah, you, you you. I mean, I mean, I think I think it was more of a thing of '90s culture. Yeah. When we 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 say it's like really yeah, it's just jokes about like oh where are hookers legal Amsterdam? Ha ha. Of course now they're legal like all over but and same with weed right it's uh. yeah but why would i want to get a hooker when i have only fans available a hooker requires leaving the house i'm not doing that shit <laughs> you request the hour of penis slapping and then perform it yourself ah it's, you just need her to witness it yeah yeah i mean it's it's fin dom i i think that in <coughs> excuse me i think that with the current trajectory of western sexuality it it the, the ultimate sexual experience will be this almost Zizekian. Uh, I I pay a woman on webcam to imagine sex with me without ever touching herself or getting naked, and then I give her two hundred dollars. That does seem to be where it's going. Although honestly, even asking her to imagine sex with you seems a little ambitious. <laughs> just I, man, man, I, wait wait i paid a woman online to imagine me having sex yeah not even necessarily with her the, it's, just, it's, it's become so difficult for me to imagine for myself i have to exactly. outsource that to an app yeah. all right all right so uh we got a show today uh, Terminus Extreme Metal Podcast, and uh, you know we're soon we're going to do our spinoff uh, podcast about <laughs> modern sexuality, and there's there's nothing better than two men obsessed with black metal with autism <laughs> to, to talk about that. <laughs> um, so, oh boy, yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah, we'll just talk about Fat Lucifer every episode, but we do that on this show too. Um, so, uh, the usual housekeeping, follow me, the death metal guy on Facebook at Terminus Extreme, uh, excuse me, <laughs> me, the death metal guy on Facebook at Terminus podcast and the black metal guy on Instagram at Terminus Extreme Metal. Uh, and then if you're particularly dedicated to the dark arts, feel free to donate $5 and up to the, uh, Terminus Patreon, which gives you access to the Terminus Prime bonus episodes, as well as the Terminus Black Circle, our private Discord server, where there's been a lot of conversation about uh, Finnish death metal uh, as yeah. of today. And as always, remember that uh, 
liking the YouTube videos and even subscribing to the channel really helps. And if you have an Apple, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can actually, if you so desire, write us a review, which we would appreciate. <laughs> it's a, yeah, those are uh, those are all good bets. The algorithm doesn't want you to know about Terminus. <laughs> the globalist it's, it's, agenda is preventing you from hearing about Torso Fuck. <laughs> I think it doesn't like the swears. Probably not. The swears are probably ruining things, but we, we refuse to compromise our art. Um, so we've got a, uh, a pretty cool thematic show after the intro <laughs> section, which is uh, something uh, completely unrelated, but something I've been looking forward to uh, for a while. Uh, this is the debut full length by the uh, longstanding project uh, Smallpox Aroma from Thailand. Uh, the record is called Festering Embryos of Logical Corruption, and it is out now on Inhuman Assault Productions on CD and uh, digital on Bandcamp. Uh, so Smallpox Aroma has been around for a pretty long time. Uh, they've been around since 2006. They started as more of a gore grind leaning band, but um, their newest material over the past several years has been focused on very pure grindcore. So I was really excited to see these guys doing a full length. Now, granted, this is like a pure traditional grindcore release, so a full length is, uh, you know, about 18 minutes long. But I think it's actually kind of perfect for the content within. Uh, for those not familiar, uh, Smallpox Aroma uh, features Polwalk, uh, possibly one of the best drummers in the world now, and almost without dispute the best in the tie scene and probably like top 10 in the metal scene overall. Uh, so what can you expect? Well, traditional grindcore, a little bit of death metal inflection, really impressive drumming and vocals, and just a, a remarkable clarity of form. Um, Smallpox Aroma is like almost technical grindcore in a way. There's not a lot of super flashy stuff but everything is delivered with such ferocity and simultaneous clarity that I think this pairs really well with the Noisy Neighbors record that we covered mm. at the beginning of this year. Um, both are lightly death metal-inflected grindcore records with a lot of subtle technicality and really distinct sort of catchy hooks in a lot of these songs. Uh, this is a 13-track album. The longest track is two and a half minutes, and it's the only one that crossed the two-minute threshold. So these are almost micro songs for the most part. But as is usual with good grindcore, these guys have uh, an incredible instinct for how to develop and execute complete ideas within really small time frames. So uh, there's not really a ton more to say without uh, just letting you guys hear it. So let's go to the second track on the album. Um, which is titled Into the Realm of Nothingness. And of course, we're just going to listen to whole songs here. So this is a good example of what the whole album sounds like. Uh, you've got these remarkably tense yet frothing, diving up and down the fretboard grind riffs uh, with this sort of tech death precision. Uh, as well as just some really awesome mosh parts. Uh, the first time I listened to this record, I swear I almost punched all of my cats. Yeah. 
ladies and gentlemen, it is a grindcore album, and it is fucking awesome. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I love that that nonsense riff. That just yeah, 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 boo, boo riff. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah. That's like a classic uh, grindcore riff. That that yes, probably yeah, originates yeah, yeah. in if, Napalm Death or something. Yeah, we talked about that. If if there's like anything that is distinctive, any kind of riffing that is distinctly grindcore, it's like short functional riffing that from the standpoint of other genres is nonsense yeah just these Um, sort of like slashing dissonant angles you know they're not even like complete mm -hmm. riffs they're just these fragmented ideas that are Mm -hmm. played really fast you know just as like a textural thing to get you to the next full idea Mm -hmm. yeah we talked about that with internal rot i think but Mm -hmm. uh but this is a different kind of grindcore that just is grindcore uh there's a little bit of the that sounds like brutal death. Uh yeah, a little bit. I mean, uh, Paul Walk has a big history playing in brutal death bands. You know, he's uh, he's in like Echimosis and uh, Biomorphic Engulfment and a, a bunch of other just like really high speed tech stuff. I mean, you can hear his drumming is fucking phenomenal. Um, but I just I, I really like. Um, I really like the way these guys juxtaposed sort of the nonsense grindcore riffs with these more defined riffing ideas. Like, that sequence with the mosh break into that sort of stop-start cryptopsy riff over the blast beat is just Mm -hmm. awesome. And it's really cool that they managed to make things so distinctive in, you know, a minute and a half package. Oh. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Like I said, guys, the, the mini slot for me now is just like, this is an awesome album. Not a ton to say about it, but it's just really cool. So we'll go to the, the other one. Um, we're going to go to uh, a really long, ambitious one. This one's about two minutes. Uh, this is called uh, Metamorphic Passage of Time. Uh, so this one starts with a really cool sort of modern Napalm Death intro section. They allow themselves like 30 seconds to just play around before they get into the meat of the song. Uh, this one has a little bit more crust flair, uh, and I also really want to point out just how vicious and unhinged the vocal performance is on this album. It's fucking awesome, and on this one we get a little acapella break where it really gets to show itself off. This 
So yeah, I think uh, the, the real unifying feature of all the grindcore bands that we bring onto the show is that ability to make um, really distinct musical ideas out of these very minimal sort of elements. Uh, it's hard to do. Um, you know, a minute or two is just not a lot of space to play with. And there was a period during like the 2000s into the early 2010s where there were a lot of these kind of noisy grindcore bands that were texturally kind of fun and interesting, but none of the music really stuck with you in a meaningful way. And in a sense, it almost became like its own weird sort of fashion music. It's just like, this is very loud and fast, but it doesn't impart any meaning that sticks with you. Um, are you are you still complaining about insect warfare? Yeah, I'm still complaining about insect warfare. This is Josh from Defeated Sanity, and you're listening to Terminus Extreme Metal Podcast. And we're back from debating what's really going on into Antarctica to review Yoga by Necropole, out now on Northern Heritage. So, um, this... This is one of the projects of the Frenchman Amartume, uh, who has, despite the dividing his efforts between several projects and having relatively few full lengths, has had a huge influence on the modern scene uh, and was playing what could be considered the nowadays style of, uh, uh, you know, uh, mostly consonant, heroic-sounding, uh, people call it melodic black metal, right, in the French style, or the sh or something like the chivalric style of black metal that we talk about on the show. Um, and uh, and I think it's, it's one of those bands that I think is more influential on other influential musicians. That's something we talked about in the last one, mm -hmm. right? So, um, uh, yeah, so this is only the second full-length from uh, Necropole, in part because I think for a long time, Amartum was dividing his efforts with his other project, Cavern. Uh, basically, uh, Cavern was the sort of hermetic solo project. Necropole was the ripping live band, which he did with other guys. But at this point, um, ne Necropole has shed its other members. Uh, and at the same time, he has dissolved Cavern. So it seems like basically he realized, wow, well, with, with those other guys out of the band, Necropole is my is Cavern, so why am I not treating these projects as the same thing, right? And we always talk on the show about the importance of concentrating your efforts and things, so that, you know, that is cool and interesting. He's staking everything on this now. Um, and I remember that the last record from Cavern we reviewed two years ago, uh, La Fin de Tout Le Chant, the end of all the songs, it had this... It felt like the end of the project. It to me, it felt like a little bit, uh, a little bit depleted relative to some of his earlier stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, the uh, we we should also talk about then about where uh, Necropole is coming from. Uh, I I suppose the biggest record from this constellation of bands was Solarite in twenty eighteen. Um, and that is the debut of Necropole. Uh, although the demos and EPs were also really influential. I think those were the ones that were really... You know what really happened? I, it's like the demos and EPs of his bands were so influential that by the time uh, 
by the time Solarite came out, it didn't it didn't seem as distinctive and original as it actually was. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, the by the time the full lengths came out, his his influence, like his unique contributions mm-hmm. to riffing and structuring, had already been sent out through the scene. So he's yeah. he sort of ends up becoming a contemporary of the very people he influenced. Yes, yeah, and I think also, and also to some degree, there are other people uh, working from, drawing from a similar well whose projects only really coalesced around that time too, right? In part, he's moving in parallel with people, but he had a lot of influence on other musicians. Um, And the, uh, and so, yeah, so you could say like one parallel we could address and would, would be a way of framing this review is a sort of, uh, and really the whole rest of this episode is a comparison to Vehemoss. Uh, um, so the bands are kind of synced with one another in an interesting way, but offset by a year. So Solarite came out in 2018. Uh, and it was really the maybe, it wasn't like, yeah, so uh, Solarte. I'm oh, sorry, I was tangenting. Solarte came out in 2018, and the Vehemans record that really broke them big. Uh, so their second record, Orda Lee's, came out in 2019. Uh, and now we had a Vehemans record last year, and now we have a Necropol record. Um, and something I'll draw on throughout this episode is the notion that, like, you know, right, black metal or whatever this is, solar metal, is warrior music, right? And that kind of, that paradigm, that character of the warrior works on a spectrum between the outlaw and the king. And the secret is that these are the same thing. Uh, each contains the other. Uh, and they exist in a natural, their natural conflict is productive. Uh, and, you know, the classic example of the conjunction of this would be the Robin Hood story, right? Robin Hood, displaced lord, lord in the forest, becomes, uh, defends, defends England for the return of the rightful king, uh, or Conan. <laughs> Conan the thief, Conan the pirate, Conan the, ki- Conan the conqueror, Conan the king, right? And last year we talked about... Um, Last year, when we, we reviewed the Ve Hamas, right, it was a very mature record, mm-hmm. and I I described it as kingly, right? It's is the it, it, there was something, uh, there was no attempt really to conquer new musical territory per se. It was just a really assured exercise in what he had already built, uh, and an enlargement and uh, uh, adding a more grandeur to it. Um, and it was, yeah, the, the king ruling over an established domain. And you could contrast that with the previous record, Ordalis, which was the sort of, you know, it was furious. It was, uh, had just these crazy riffs flying all over the place, right? Um, extreme, fast, very impressive, right? And that's the mood of the kind of questing, battling knight trying to sort of carve out his own realm and his own place in the world. And that's kind of the same deal here. Um, Solarite was, I mean, you can see it on the cover, right? It's just, uh, you know, a classic, a classical hero, uh, smiting a bestial centaur, right? Uh, warrior hero carves out his realm. Um, and, you know, it has that, it has some, 
it toned down. A, it, it's it's a lot more refined and ornate than the earlier uh, Necropole stuff, but it still has that grinding, unhinged energy, and there's a fire to it, a solar flame to it. It's and a, a stomp, and it's all sort of dazzling. It's meant to overawe the listener. And yoga, on the other hand, is this. Uh, calm and assured power of someone who is centered in the kingdom and stabilizing the kingdom uh and uh but here the parallel ends because where vehemence from that kind of assurance uh sort of felt like being on making an honest turn towards heavy metal right and accessibility you emphasize that record's power metal mm-hmm aspect yeah um am uh the um, that has never sounded less interested in pleasing people which is weird because people love this record but perhaps for the wrong reasons or not not ever all the reasons and you know we can get into that in a bit what did you make of it uh, so I think this is this is just objectively extremely good um, it's just a, a brilliant execution of French black metal, um, in a few different ways. So Solarite, uh, you know, the, the first full length is a record that I really liked. Um, but I guess it wasn't really distinctive enough from other French black metal that I really liked to put it into regular rotation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I probably just need to go back and revisit it. I probably have more time for it now. Now that the fine grain distinctions make themselves more apparent after, especially after doing the show and covering so much French black metal, um, yoga though is just kind of brilliant. Um, the standard French black metal reference points are all in play, but what this actually reminds me of more than anything is later uh, Ludo Meisel, which is mm-hmm. uh, I've been getting back into in a really big way over the past few months, uh, listening to some of the newer records that I had just kind of skipped over before. Uh, just because Ludo Meisel releases records and you don't fucking hear about it until two years later. There's just no effort mm-hmm. made to promote it. Um, so there's something about the way Ludomysel constructs music that is very similar to the way Amertum constructs music on this record, where it's very lead guitar focused, um, with uh, strangely gauzy yet very invigorated chord backing. Uh, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's almost like structurally more like Ukrainian black metal than it is French black metal, despite the fact that all the melodic content is distri- mm. distinctly French. Um, this is really good to pair with the Karn record that we covered, what was that, a week or two ago? Uh, like a week, yeah, a week-ish. Yeah, that was also really focused on lead guitar, but this is distinctly and unapologetically like a one-man project in a really good way. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In the sense that this is clearly like an auteur's take on mm-hmm. this kind of black metal record. Um, and the relative, the sort of fundamental minimalism that results from being a one-man black metal project uh, is used as a strength and not a detriment here. So I, I guess my take on this is that this is sort of like as sophisticated as you get within that sort of uh, burly sort of, in a sense, almost bulldozering one-man black metal project format. 
Um, it's 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 minimal and ferocious, but like oddly tasteful at the same time. And it's also what I really like about it is despite how sort of wild and weird this band can be, um, it has no sense of uh, I, I how do I phrase this. So, for instance, there's a lot of uh, McGlaw-isms that are dotted around this record. And mm-hmm. I can imagine mm-hmm. another similar guy, like, refusing to incorporate those yes. ideas because it's McGlaw. Amartum doesn't give a fuck how you feel about McGlaw or, like, whether that's, like, a corny thing to put in because it's too big. He takes the technology, he executes it extremely well, and he puts his own spin on it. And it doesn't matter whether any of this shit reminds you of McGlaw or Emperor or Ludomysel or anything. Yes. It's just a completely natural outgrowth. Yeah. And he has no interest in any sort of debate of, like, oh, is, is an influence too mainstream or too underground yeah. or anything. Yeah. Yes, he's not going to put anything off the table a priori, right? It's all going to be things he likes, and there's going to be no, like, oh, this riff is, like, too long, or, oh, this riff is too short, or, uh, you know, this riff's too simple, right? Uh, yeah. There are plenty of really simple riffs. There are plenty of really fancy riffs. Um, there's no sense, like, X riff is the wrong genre or anything like that. Uh and yeah, not insecure about being influenced by some of the biggest names in black metal. And that is a huge distinction that sets this guy's work above the work it has influenced. Because the early raw demos by both of his bands and EPs were sort of fundamental for the nowadays sort of raw tape black underground. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, uh, pop music with bad production. And, it, it, and the effort is to avoid... Anything that, like, sounds good or powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this guy has always been very focused on just making a really good black metal with every resource at his disposal at the time. Yeah, this is, this is guided by a very complete internal logic, which all the best black metal is. Um, yeah. And it's like, it's not really a... The thing is, it, this is an eminently listenable record, mm-hmm. and it, it's and in a sense, it's very accessible. But you, we can kind of because I know you have notes on that aspect of the record. I guess sort of like not to you know like Go undercut you, but just the idea is like it sort of like doesn't matter whether it's accessible or not. Like like that's not even a, a question uh, in Amartum's mind. I, I do not believe that he made this with any consideration of what anyone would think about it. Yeah, no, I, I, I okay, I agree with that. Yeah. It's, um, it is, it just is what it is. Uh, I would say basically this record is working on multiple levels. I don't know, you know, I, I'm not fully committed to this take. I think after listening to it again today, I might nuance it somewhat. But, um, I think, yeah, it is, in some sense, it's accessible. Uh, or, no, I guess it just really is, right? It really is accessible. If you like how these, there are, in some ways, it's an easy-to-love record. 85 to 90% of this, if not more, well, no, 85 to 90, is this kind of smoothly flowing, consonant melody that everyone loves these days. And... 
uh, often at its most ornate and flowery. They're the sort of big riffs of French melodic black metal that French black metal, black all black metal is melodic. I shouldn't even, subs- I shouldn't even use that fucking term. But uh, um, <laughs> we all know what you mean. Yeah. 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 Uh, the big riffs that are associated with French black metal, um, and people online will talk about the riffs, man. But I don't think it's really about that. I think that many of the most Many of the riffs that sound most like Early Hour Lock or that sound most like the most epic Pest Noir or, uh, or Vehemence or whatever, uh, those riffs are not really the focal point. And if you isolate them, uh, they tend to blur together. Uh, and I don't think pound for pound they're even like as good or as distinctive as the riffs that he wrote to invent this style. I don't think that's really the point. Um, uh, you know, when we reviewed the Karn record, right, the other week, we were talking about infla- what makes a powerful riff is, in in part, having these sort of decisive inflection points where it does something or changes, right? Uh, that being a method uh, that we associated with, like, Spite Extreme Wing, for instance, where, like, in the middle of a riff, it will, like, dive mm-hmm. or redirect or or soar or something. Um, and this is a guy who clearly was, unlike almost everyone else, was directly influenced by Spite Extreme Wing. I think Solarite has that all over it. And it really is the first self-conscious... It's the first thing that just basically calls itself solar black metal, which is making good on their, you know, making good on what they were innovating uh and um and and so Amartum is familiar with that strategy uh but he's using it more at the level of the whole song or at the level of the album so it seems like the uh the riffs that are carrying the weight are often the strangest uh and the most uh, or they're often, yeah, they're, they're, they're the rougher, darker riffs, basically. They're often simpler than the things around them, but they often have really dense, complex, high-tension harmonies. And they have strange, jagged shapes, that lightning bolt shape we were talking about with Spite Extreme Wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in these moments, this riff intervenes, and it punctuates, energizes, and redirects all of the flowery riffing that is the main sort of homogenous material of the record. Does that make sense? I, I get what you're saying. You're you're sort of implying that there's um, a metastructural conceit where the the uh, the most melodic sort of traditional like flowery French black metal riffing is a, a sort of like foundation for the album, but it's it's simultaneously like an ethereal thing. You know, it, it is sort of a, a, a mass that the distinct ideas swim through. Yeah, it's it it is a it is the matter of the record and other riffs. It's at certain riffs that are giving it form. I can right. I can kind yeah. of see that. I, I, I would argue that um I guess the only point that I would argue is that I think that we can't discount the fact I 
I would argue that the basic level of riffing on this in terms of French black metal riffing is substantially better than almost anyone out there. Uh, I, I think that, yeah, a lot of this is built out of homogenous material, but if you isolate certain sections and really pay attention to them, there's this like masterful subtlety to a way to the way that a lot of this stuff is arranged that, um, I, I guess it's not it's not particularly distinct stylistically, but qualitatively, it's just like way the fuck in front of almost oh, everyone. I agree, he's on the top of this game, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I think that's fair to say. There is a very high baseline level of composition here, and maybe I'm taking that for granted in the same way that, say, I took it a little for granted with Cromluck, right? Um, like there, there's a very high baseline, and I think also on. I think two thing, other other things could be said. So on repeat listens, yes, I think there really are just some stonkers, some really good, you know, chivalric French black metal riffs here, right? That is true, and they do care. Some of them are given weight, and also the closer you look at certain songs, ah, uh, the more, at least depending on the song the more it seems like the whole song is made of these sort of uh, inflection points. Yeah, yeah, I think mm. there's, there's... Which a... just means it's a really good song. <laughs> yeah, I, I think <laughs> that know, even, uh... even the most sort of, like, typical uh, melodic ideas at work here um, are, one, just extremely good within the confines of the style, and two, I, I think the whole vibe of the record, you know, this sort of, like ethereal mystical quality recontextualizes those sort of standard melodies in a way that gives them new life. Okay. Here's the last thing I'd say in defense of that idea. I think there's like part of the assurance of this record and it's sort of removal from, uh, part of the assurance of this record is like using this stuff that is incredibly high detail as stock riffage. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And and it's in it's like the sort of horror vacui method. Mm-hmm. There necro the solaritary was very dense most of the way through, but there actually was space in it. There is like zero space in this record. Yeah. Yeah, um, this, this is very dense. All right. So, I think whatever else progress I'm going to make in my understanding of this will have to come from listening to it and talking about it with you. So, let's go to uh um, I don't know. The first track that really blew me away, uh, Withershins, the second one. And uh, start it right at the beginning.
okay. I think I actually do somewhat stand by the point I was gonna I was putting forward at the beginning. So here you get like a really good, really well written sort of ornate chivalric riff. Da 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 right? It it turns around in this very uh neat resolution. Uh the each of the scale runs is really stock for this style. The thing that gives it its distinctness is really that there is a very fully worked out chord progression under it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, however, to me, that still sounds like okay, really good execution in an established style. Second riff is a kind of more mid-tempo part that almost just immediately gives the kind of orgasmic release that I think a lot of people want from this stuff. But it, I can't, I can't remember it, and it seems it's like strictly functional in the song. It happens. And then just is immediately cut through by this sort of sawing, downstroking, da, 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 this very high tension riff, um, that then launches into a second high tension riff. That the you know the da 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 da, da kind of a raga riff. Mm-hmm. It's the only place on the record where you actually, or one of the only where you really hear the connection in an overt way to the sort of the the esoteric hindu subject matter mm-hmm. right right it's it's like it's there's a kind of raga raga drone thing going on he always avoids sort of hokey orientalism though yeah. so that's one one of the only spots you get it but um and then it's a weird thing happens where uh in, you know, he hits that inflection point in the third riff, then in that fourth riff, as it starts to get this more raga drone feel, uh, it start he the last turnaround of it, he resolves it like the initial chivalric riff. He gives it a flowery, harmonious resolution. And then there's like one more interstitial riff, and then he just relaunches that first big heroic riff. And when it comes in again, I feel like it comes in with so much more force. Yeah, um, I... I think that, but one, I'll, I'll actually say this, listening to this again, makes me think even more distinctly that maybe one of the things that sets this apart from a lot of French black metal is this very considered, like, deep appreciation of, like, Ukrainian-Russian black metal. Um, there's something about the way Amartum links riffs that really reminds me of some of the more aggressive stuff that came out of Ukraine, especially, like... Um, 2000s into early 2010s type shit. Um, and I really like that. Uh, I, I think that we're both kind of like saying the same thing, but approaching it from different angles where, yeah, a lot of the melodic phrases you'll find on this record are pretty are, are, are pretty familiar to us as like devotees of the style. But we got to keep in mind one Amartum like had a hand in inventing a bunch of them, so he he gets permanent access to them. And sure. and, and two, there's a real agglutinative quality to uh, a lot of these songs that race through riffs. I mean, that sample was what five or six riffs there, yes. um, and something emerges from the interrelation of those things. It's almost like the the touchstone that I always use for French black metal, like Take. Um, where Take will do similar stuff where over the course of a couple minutes, they'll rush through like six riffs, none of which are that significant on their own, but the sort of breathless energy that it gives to the music is its own purpose. 
There. Okay. I think that's that's a very good point, and that's what I was trying to... That, that, that sort of helps bring out what I was trying to get at. Uh, lest there be a mistake, I am not criticizing this record. I think it's fun. I think it's brilliant. I really like this record. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's... Um, uh, and I think that the weight is less on certain individual big riffs than, yeah, on structure. In the biggest sense, that's what I meant by, like, these inflection points of the song. Yeah, it's, I get what you mean. It's, yeah. it's about structure and more than the sum of its parts. Uh, and, um, you know, so with Solarite, right, the music is, it's moves like, it works like conventional black metal. There is, or like the Spite Extreme records, at least the early ones. It's about transfer of force, right? Smite, steamroll, overpower, right? Yoga is about, like, a a force that resides in solidity and integrity of structure, but the structure is beauty, right? It's it's harmonious and, yeah, ethereal. Uh, And um, that gives it this feeling of sort of an an, an in, invincible fortress beyond time because of its relative delicacy and stability. Uh, it's sort of, um, and I feel like that's kind of the yoga idea, right? You see this sort of self-contained lotus pose. Yeah, and it's, it, it's sort of, um, it, it, it's sort of this like, it, it, coolly arrogant record. It, yes, I, I really like that. It's like it, it's it doesn't it doesn't convey the the sort of moment to moment combativeness of regular black metal because it doesn't need to. It, it, it's so assured of its own position above everything else. You know, it fucking rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think it's it's more in yes, it's um it. And yet, I think you're right to point out that despite that, the songs really do move, right? Yeah. They, yeah. You know, it's not just about like, you know, a good example of structure music or whatever is like Ruins of Beverast, right? This isn't really like architecture in any apparent way. That's why I mean, it's a sort of ethereal architecture. Um, the... Uh, and the songs really move like that. That sample just zips along, and each riff just hurl, hurdles into the next. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very it, even if no individual riff is designed to be a standout, it's yeah. nevertheless like, extremely exciting music. If, if you compare it to Solarite, you'll hear like Solarite is ripping. This record is not conventionally ripping. Yeah, uh, and the rippingness ha- has to do, say, with the propulsion and the sickness of the individual riffs. Right? Yeah. Like like rain and blood is ripping. Every riff is every riff is sick, every riff drives it forward and is relentlessly fast. This record is like it get it's it has a different kind of speed. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's tempered by its own confidence but not in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Um yes, yeah, exactly. So we just talked about how the individual riffs uh, aren't that crucial to this record. So let me play a sample where I talk about individual riffs a lot. Um, I'm going to go to the track Sound is the Source. Um, and this one just blows me the fuck away every time I hear it. Uh, I'm going to start right at the beginning. And um, I'll give kind of the breakdown of the structure of the riffs after it plays. But I'll say my ears, I, I, I raised an eyebrow quizzically 
at the the intro to this song, which has one of the most direct sort of Maglaisms. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about how he uses Magla and how he uses other bands and other ideas in a way that still feels very personalized to this one. That song opens with a, again, a very direct Maglaism. That sort of, those sort of glassy arpeggios over the, just the rock and roll beat on the drums. That's going to be a very exercises in futility kind of technique or even age of excuse. Um, Grossa. Well, Grossa, well, I mean, Maglaz like always done it. I guess I'm just associating it with kind of them popping off, like over riffs like that. Uh, I, I just... Uh, keep going. That's pedantic of me. Keep going. Okay. Um, and then uh, then we start sequencing very rapidly through these riffs. We get this really strong kind of dark inflection point trem riff that sort of opens things up. Then we go into a variation on the intro riff when the vocals kick in. Uh, then break into a single string lead like Karn. Uh, but just like not quite as like explosively weird as they are, but still mm-hmm. very much in mm-hmm. that that vein and then just a a brilliant total franco finish riff uh it's just absolutely like it's it's the best riff on let the devil in that wasn't actually on the album Mm -hmm. um and then into a variation on that with recontextualized drumming that turns it into this sort of like black metal rac inflected with emo stomp riff um yeah 
Back, is, back to the Migla thing a bit. <laughs> yeah, back to the Migla thing a little bit. Um, and what I think is interesting is like uh, the the way that Amartum uses these sort of like big obvious influences like Migla or Sargeist, it, it almost makes you like rediscover what was so good about those things to begin with. Now, you know, the, the black metal scene is completely littered with people imitating Migla and imitating Sargeist it can be easy to forget what those tools can accomplish when in the hands of someone who's just really fucking good at using them. Um, and this is a case where he's he's taking these big, obvious ideas that we've heard in many other places and just executing them at a level that's just beyond what most people would consider possible. Like, I haven't heard a Sargeist knockoff riff that good outside of Sargeist. It's that just, it's is, great. That riff is really good, and it shows the ability to snap in a second from one level of resolution to another, right? You know, he, he there that song has a lot of sort of spiraling intricacy, right? And and it has these you know flyaway leads and things, and then. Uh, Oh wait, sorry. Yeah, I actually just hummed the riff, but I sped it up. Sorry, I'm I'm not remembering whichever was the the, the fancier riffs, but that the it just suddenly we're at a big minimalist riff, right? Like just long drawn out chords. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's funny you call it a sar- like. Ordinarily, I would argue with you about it being a sargeist riff and say that's a Senor Valand riff, but. As we've learned, Seigneur Valand was way more influential on the Finns than it was on the French themselves. Yeah, it's ah. it's very interesting how that's worked. Yeah, and then that the French seem to have been getting it more from the same sources, like Gorgoroth, or and also maybe from an even earlier inventor of that style, like Osculum and Fam. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this really does sound kind of like Sargeist, and in in one of the songs in the songs in uh. The Manifold Realm, which I sample later, there really there's just really a let the devil in riff. And, yeah. and so I, I think I'm with you there. There really is just like, yeah, Sargeist or something. Uh and there is just no sense that like a riff that simple or a riff that catchy or epic is beneath him. And what he gives it is all the um uh Instead of sounding sugary or overdone, it just sounds um, uh, sort of lofty and resolute. Yeah, it's it's and, it's not just sort of trudging in the yeah. same like stoked about Satan but kind of sad territory right. that a lot of bands are. Like it has a distinct purpose yeah. and vision yeah. to it. Yes. The riffs on Sargeist here capture the thing that is most serious about that band which is this sort of um uh the sense that being a satanist is hard work and is is, is demanding right there there's a sense of like burning spiritual devotion in some of the best sargeist songs uh and although you know the thematics are a little different here uh he hears that in those riffs and captures it 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good point. You gotta, you, you got, you gotta do a lot of sacrifices before you get the evil orgy. All right, we don't just, <laughs> you don't just, you don't just putter your way into the temple, d- declare your life to Satan, and then you're just like fucking nuns left and right. No, no, this is a goddamn blue collar household here. <laughs> um, but. And, you know, the other thing that Riff does is it harkens back to his earliest stuff. That could have been off the Cavern demo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you just like a lot more sort of, like, rickety and raw and necrotic. Um, But, you know, just more of those, like, sort of bold two or three string corded riffs. Um, And, yeah, the Miglasm is awesome. I mean, this guy, this is a guy who would have been listening to them from Groza. Mm -hmm. And Groza is, like, the most... Uh, stomping and arpeggiated of all of them. It really focuses on that, and there are a few moments on this record that are like quotes from that, but you're right that that stuff becomes really prominent again on exercises, and I'm sure he likes exercises. Yeah, it's just a really good album. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's a, an album that's easy to decry because of its outsized influence, but it's just really excellent. Um, so let he's, me go to... He's not afraid of good bands. Yes, thank you. That is that is a good that's a philosophy we try to maintain on the show, which is good bands are good regardless of how big they are. Yes. Um Okay, so I'm going to go to another one. Uh I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this correctly, but Sivios? Mhm. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know if there was some weird French in Sounds there. sounds right to me. I don't know. So, uh for this one, I'll talk about it a little bit, but it really speaks for itself. I think that this may be the first non-North American fully-fledged outlaw rock song. Um, And it's kind of unique on this album. There's not really another track on this record that sounds exactly like this. Uh, It's got the, it's really sprightly and melodic. It's got like major key inflections. It's got these stompy, hardcore inspired rhythmic switches. uh, This sort of subtle emo cording going on underneath a lot of it. And of course, the the Franco-Finnish foundation it's all there, and if this came out of, like, an American band, it would not shock me at all. Oh! 
You start spazzing out at the end there. That part, that, that. But you never finish your sentence. So. Oh, that last riff. Um, so like the kind of the kind of perky uh, major key melodies. I, I I like okay here. Um, they're not. I, I like them. It, it sounds a lot like. First of all, you're totally right about sounding American. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of major key folk melody sounds a hell of a lot like the kind of Appalachian Spring type riff that yeah. you need in yeah. the Ink and Fire record. Yeah, right? it's, you're, you were totally right. You wrote that in the notes, and that was something I was thinking when I heard the song. I was like, this is very Ink and Fire. Yeah. It's it's like Ink and Fire with a very different musician's inflections. I mean, Ink and Fire, I mean, you know, uh, MK from Finn was also very influential at the root of this style. And uh, it's like hearing their two different iterations on, uh, you know, this more sort of yeah d- direct rockish kind of folky thing. Um, uh, I think I prefer the version that sounds like it's recorded in a wind tunnel. Um, <laughs> however, um, however, I think kind of the things that happen at the end of the song really bring it all together for me and make the uh make it completely worth it. At the end he he he's been developed this kind of uh you know, this kind of dancing around the maypole melody. And then at the very end it remains equally bright, but just the intervals shift and it just becomes a, a, a just this soaring mountainous trem riff. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's like an ode to joy riff. Yeah, it really is. I was I was thinking that like parts of that melody sounded like they were quoted from some sort of classical piece, like maybe uh, something off like Vivaldi's Four Seasons or something. But I I, I can't mm-hmm. tell exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a few other things that I want to point out. Uh, one another direct point of comparison here is going to be Maquahedal, Um in the way he does those super high needling like single string flowing trem arrangements. Mm-hmm. Two, the drumming across this record is fucking sick. Like, we don't talk about drumming when we do black metal reviews very often, unless it really surprises us. And for me, it's actually one of the highlights of this record. It's super musical. It's clearly in part patterned off of, uh, you know, Dark Side from McGlaw in a lot of the, the arrangements of cymbal runs. There's also this, this unusual sort of jazzy inflection he likes to put on things. And uh, he's just constantly switching uh, various subtleties about the way these rhythms are played. Like if, uh, if a riff loops four times, you're never going to hear the beat under it played exactly the same way. It can be little accents, um, little minor rhythmic variations, but there's just a ton going on. And the it's... blasts are <coughs> the blasts are super. Um, there's like the, there's expansion and contraction of the timing within the blast beats. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's like the. Um, uh, yeah, there is, and and they also, I mean, at times sound like, uh, at times they sound as fast and as um, brutal as like Morbid Angel or War Metal blasting or like like Gravity blasts. Yeah, you know what I mean. At times I'm like, damn, that's fast. Yeah, they're just kind um, of blurring. And, and this is important because, as far as we, maybe there is a session drummer, but I'm pretty sure he's doing the drumming himself. Yeah. Yeah. And oh yeah, no, he's credited with drums. So these are live drums that he's doing himself. Uh and 
Although, wait, it, it becomes complicated because, okay, there are live musicians, but they're not recording with him. Yeah, he's playing the drums. Yeah, he's uh, become an extremely good drummer. Yeah, and that is really part of the challenge. I think we've talked about this before, but one reason the, the one-man band format usually sucks is that it's not a serious effort to make a band. Mm-hmm. Like, like, Varg really played all the instruments, and he had to work within his own limitations as a drummer. And, you know, he also had to get himself to play uh, blast beats up to acceptable Norwegian speed. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right? Where, whereas, like, this is like, um, uh, and, you know, there's maybe a lot rougher drumming on the early, you know, cavern stuff or whatever, right? But uh, this is somebody who took that project really seriously and is not relying on programmed drums and is not... Um, has also not remained static with like really minimal drumming. Yeah, uh, agreed. It's uh, it's a very important voice to this music, um, and uh, it almost reminds me a little bit of how uh, drumming is used in like Imhotarakat. Uh, Imhotarakat is actually mm. kind of a reference point for me on this, especially in its like this album's weirdest, most major key moments. Um, and then the last thing that I want to add, which is really something that you've brought to attention more than me, which is kind of funny given what it is, which is a lot of this is like kind of DSBM in a way, like fast DSBM chord structures. Hmm. Um, and I think that that's just because DSBM is the, the, the sort of like understated source material of a ton of shit that's just taken for granted in black metal right now. Mm-hmm. But I assume from Amartum it's probably coming like more directly because he's, yeah. he's expressed interest in that style in and of itself in other projects. Um, so yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Spite, for instance, which is sort of like gothy, stompy, punkish DSBM. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's right. I, I mean, one of right, I mean, we've it's not a secret anymore because we say it on the show, but like, uh, you know, this guy is in on the secret that Migla is in part a DSBM band, yeah. Um, yeah. and uh, the um, it's uh, so I, I can hear that, that makes sense. Um, I could also hear like a Nictalgia thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, uh. Let's go to uh, the next one. So, you know, this record is uh, difficult to sample. Not because it's like... Not because there's just like a homogenous continuity to it, right? Which there really isn't. The point is that there are parts that are very smoothly flowing that are then sharply demarcated and move into a new one. Uh, But more because like once the songs start, they just don't stop. Right, and so here's a song that maybe disproves my, what I was saying about you know uh, de-emphasized bassline riffing given structure by inflection point riffing because like this song is just all inflection point riffing, which means it's just a very traditional, extremely good black metal song. Thank you. 
Yeah, so how about the literal Sargeist riff? Yeah, it's so good, man. It's it's so good. <laughs> is is that like discovering the enshrouded eye or something? Um, I thought it da, was. Da, 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 da. I thought it was the second riff off a uh, burning voice of adoration. Mm-hmm. Um, but with like a, a different turnaround at the end. I think the chords are the same though. I'll have to re-listen to it and double check. Yeah. But that is a very obvious case of a Sargeist riff, and later in the song, he half-times it and lets it sprawl out a bit, and it's just even more grand, uh, and it, it, the connection is more obvious. But, um, you know, in, in a way, this is there's a sort of grand tour of everything this guy likes thing going on. As in a really authentic attempt to make the most complete work possible, right? If you ever wanted to hear uh, a Migla riff that you can just go like, "This is uh, war too," right? That that is the end. That is the last riff on this. It's like it's like one of the Migla arpeggiated riffs, but played like speed metal. Um. Uh, and I feel like I've heard that riff before somewhere else, like very close. Something, but I, I can't place it. Uh, more than that, though, it is, it's just the way that structure keeps moving. It is so propulsive. Uh, maybe I'm changing my mind. Maybe this is not deliberately sort of restrained and, uh, um detached music or maybe not not so architectural and ethereal because i mean this this is i think the most aggressive track so it's not it's it's sort of an exception but it's also one of the longer ones and it's at a focal point in the record structure um the uh you know um this is also a place where we can talk about yeah the necropole following on spite extreme wing and the solar metal lineage because you know, some of the best riffs are... Every sing- uh Or that, that riff that was just like a Nandu Corduca riff that was almost a death metal riff. You you heard that one, right? Yeah. 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 It's... it's it, I mean, we've been... We, we've been wrong about the Spite Extreme Wing thing eight dozen times before, but my hand to God were right this time.
We are back with our final record for tonight, and uh, this uh, this record f- is an inclusion that feels very like 2020 or 2021 Terminus, when we we weren't like tracking as many labels, so a lot of shit that wound up on the show was just bizarre stuff that we found in the wild. Um, this is exactly the case for this record. This is the self-titled full length by Heresy. Uh, released on France Black Death Grind, which seems like just a, a small, uh, just general-purpose local extreme metal label out in France. Um, 
Heresy are not a band that I had any familiar with familiarity with before this. Uh, it is a sort of a French ruralist black metal duo. Although it, there's only two people on this record, but there's four people listed on metal archives. I'm not sure if they're live musicians or how the lineup shakes out, but uh, the material on this record was composed by the core duo. Um, so it, I, this isn't something I usually talk about much on the show, but I think it's it, it bears mention here, and there's things to talk about within this topic, which is these guys are really young. Uh, the core two members of this, I know one of them is 20, and then the other guy, I'm guessing he's going to be around the same age, maybe a little bit younger. So this project started uh, just a couple years back when these guys were in their late teens, and it sounds like it in a good way. Um, a lot of the most pivotal extreme metal records were made by guys in their late teens and early 20s. And I would say that there is a certain kind of record that can only be made in that age bracket. Something very direct, sort of deliberately simple, and just deeply impassioned in how just scrappy and single-minded it is. And I think those are all adjectives that apply really well to this album. Um, so to describe what Heresy sounds like is a little bit challenging because you want to you want to jump to obvious stuff that is sort of uh, thematically or aesthetically similar. And, uh, you know, a reference point here would be Pest Noir, but this doesn't actually sound like Pest Noir. In fact, it doesn't really sound like any of the other big names in French black metal. What it really sounds like is a lot of scrappy CDR stuff that I used to hear around the late 2000s and early 2010s. Uh, this is deliberately primitive and blocky drum machine-led music, um, and I wouldn't have it any other way. This is the the apex of the 18-year-old uh, bedroom black metal album. Uh, it has all the things that made some of that shit really awesome, and it does away with all the sort of, like, fucked up incompetence that characterized a lot of it too. Uh, and what you get is something that is sort of earthy and rural, but scowling and ornery at the same time. It's impassioned and sad, but sort of resolutely realistic at once. I, I can't think of another record that really shares the atmosphere that this one has, and for that alone, I think that it's super cool. But uh, Black Metal Guy, you, uh, you, you called me late last night when I was at a party to express your feelings about the record, so how about you take it away? I love it. It's awesome. <laughs> um, I knew when I selected that you were just going to yeah. immediately love this. Yeah. I think after getting through the second half of the record, I think the second, it like, okay, by the time you get to the second, it's a 50-minute record. By the time you get to the second half, you're like, okay, this is, these guys are starting out. There are some mistakes in how they, sometimes the songs um, sprawl in the bad way, mm -hmm. I think, um, and lose some of the energy. Uh, however it's partly okay because the songs on the back end of the record are sadder. Um, 
uh, you know, so yeah, it, it it's not like when I was like, let's say this, when I was a third of the way through the record, I was like, oh, this is album of the year for sure. <laughs> like, 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 like just based on the first three songs, the major songs, I was like, this is just sick. This is, uh, I think, yeah, I think it's a little more hit or miss on the second half, but there's plenty of good stuff there. And the record as a whole is, has so much personality and energy and is just so true that, uh, it, you know, it, it's really commendable. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it, it's so, it's so fucking spirited and mm-hmm. it, it like, it even, it, it, it like justifies its own album cover. This just like, yes, this very pretty painting of, you know, uh, French pastoralism. And mm-hmm. it, it's like, there's so many albums that would have this cover and would fucking suck. <laughs> but this Yeah, oh yeah, I think I've seen the cover and I ignored it because I assumed it was Atmo Black. Yeah, 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 you think it's Atmo Black, but this is like simultaneously way more like ragged and mean than the cover would mm-hmm. imply, but it's also perfectly contiguous with it. You know what I mean? It's 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 a it's an album of fascinating dualism in that it's like really like yeah. pissed off and ugly sometimes, but it's perpetually appropriate for its aesthetic. Yeah. The, um, if I, I wanted to make a broad comparison for this, uh, it would be pagan hellfire. Yeah. Um, I can see that, which some people have also compared cavern to, um, hmm. and, it, uh, but like basically, for that comparison, um, well, you know what? Let's just get into a sample first, because I think that that'll be helpful. But basically, um, the overall point related to the cover and the Pagan Hellfire is this record has just, it has a, a wonderful production. It's raw, it's rasping, it's trebly, but not spiky or grating. Um, uh... And like a lot of the early black metal records, it's mixed kind of quiet, but in a way that begs to be turned up. Um, I was listening to this record last night, like almost at the pain threshold. Um, And when you do that, like the relatively sparse instrumentation and really minimalist riffs, uh, just they throw off and open up huge sonic landscapes. And you can recognize in them, you know, the French countryside, but it is a French countryside that's, you know, it, there's there's some like play, there's some ironies going on in how they've structured it. I think some deliberate ironies, right? And so the cover gives us like the serenity of the pastoral, right? You and I were complaining about easy pastoralism just before we recorded the show, mm-hmm. right? Um, sentimental retreat to the countryside, blah, blah, blah. This the cover could easily be dismissed as sentimental schlock or whatever, but there's obviously also something deeply appealing about that landscape, and um, they, uh, and in the music they sort of take that familiar, sort of domesticated, uh, well-trodden, thoroughly kind of 
farmed over settled humanized land that's had just like thousands of years of continuous settlement and you know hundred like you know at least a thousand years of continuous sort of civilization there like or you know let's like you're right punctuated by more than that but okay like there's rome and then there's the dark ages right uh Mm -hmm. um and uh basically rural france in some ways is land that has had it has been worked over by people for a very long time and there are you know rolling we're all familiar with these vistas of rolling beautiful hills and you know lush forests and fertile valleys and all that uh and it's easy to think of it as a sweet thing this record sort of defamiliarizes the french countryside and suddenly you're seeing it as rugged and harsh and as uh and as sort of wasteland in the way they meant it in the Middle Ages, where where nobody lives. You see, it's, um, it, it, it's interesting because I, I almost have this like sort of parallel yet opposite take. <clears throat> Just in that it, it sounds like it is a, a familiar and strangely comforting landscape because you grew up there. But because you grew up there, you know that it's dangerous also. Huh. I, I, I like that. I mean, yeah, this certainly is not about being disturbed by the land. It's about a deep feeling of rootedness and identification. Uh, yeah, I see what you mean. You know it so well that you know it is not just tame vacation land. Yeah, it's you ca- understand it as nature red in tooth and claw. Yeah, it's kind of like a Gendoza Angrep, which is like oh. an affectionate period piece about you know, like turn of the century Scandinavia, but it's also about like having to deal with a wolf when you have a pocket knife, you know? No, no. I I think we're agreed on this basically. Like, I think we're actually saying the same thing. It's like, you're taking the, the notion of it as sort of smiley, happy, settled place, uh, a calm and peaceful place. And, uh, restore and, and not restoring because it was always there, but revealing the, uh, the primordial landscape under it uh and um and jacking into that uh and um you mentioned Gendod. Mm-hmm. uh well let's drop into the record on a riff that just sounds like it could have come off of uh one of the earlier Gendod records
that's commitment. Yeah. Right? So we start off on this riff that this sort of um, just buzzsawing tritone descent and then this kind of skittering arpeggio that really sounds like it could be on, uh, yeah, I, I said Gendod, but even more than that, it's just like like Emperor Before the Emperor EP. That that it, it, it's um it's like something off the Wrath of the Tyrant demo, like Ancient mm-hmm. Queen or like Moon Over Karashair or whatever. Yeah, the, the rougher, uh, more death metal aligned stuff. <laughs> yeah, and like really sort of garagey, and it has this sort of that stuff had this sort of like loping off kilter vibe that you could hear. Well, certainly in the second riff that the strange rhythmic feel you could hear in the second riff that came in. Uh, and it, it's, uh, and the jaggedness of it. Uh, and the thing that, so here, and in the sample, you hear this strange juxtaposition of, uh, youthfulness and maturity, which is like the first riff, that first buzzsawing riff is just like, and as you say, yeah, kind of death metal is, uh, they just repeat it forever. Yeah. And there are moments when they make it sound like it's going to stop and then it doesn't. They never do like a fake end to it, like Overkill, Motorhead, but like they, they there are moments where it's sort of like uh, fakes at a turnaround or something and just plows ahead. Uh, they don't drop it. Um, and it's... Uh, that is the kind of thing that um, once I realized that they weren't going to stop playing the riff, I was like, this is genius. <laughs> like, like, like this is just like, that is like the energy that made the genre what it is. And it's, uh, there is no fucks given about being quote unquote boring or being unoriginal or anything like that. These guys are like 19 or 20, and for them, uh, just uh, dissonant, evil, mayhemic emperor riffs like that just have all of the gravity that they had for us at that age, and they transmit it here. Yeah, it's... it's, it's there, there is such a... Um, such a, a passion for just playing black metal mm-hmm. on this album. A, a, a passion that, like, after you've been doing it for a while, just sort of naturally slips away. It, you know, it doesn't get worse. It just gets different. You have a different emotional connection to it. Here, the the emotional connection to this music is so hot and immediate. It's like, it, it transports me back to being a teenager and listening to this shit. The one th- so, yeah, and... But then, like, there's also the in the, the the chording at the end of that riff, the there's like kind of weird harmony going on, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just like an evil dark. It's not just like say generic dark throne aggressive riff. No, right? it is it is connected to the French ruralism even at, in its most kind of dissonant and Scandinavian moments. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um and it's connected to like the more subtle Scandinavian black metal rather than to like the sort of parodies of it that have come after. Um and and the teenage energy here, I think the thing I want to emphasize is like the teenage energy here is not like uh bash it out in the garage. It's like Norwegian teenager energy. Yeah. It's that yeah. sort of s- strange sophistication and seriousness. Um 
But yeah, and so then you hear that because then they get to the end of the riff. They don't even bother doing like loser grown-up shit like writing a transition riff or uh, even really a turnaround. They just stop and then just start playing immediately this really bizarre, beautiful riff that sounds like it could have been written by someone like three times their age. Yeah. Uh, it's that it's like um or by I mean or by Rob Darkin in his twenties. Yeah. Like, I was I was is, gonna say I was actually I was listening to Thousand Swords the other day and oh yeah. like I'll yeah, I was in my car and I was like, well let's listen to Thousand Swords, see what all the fuss is about. Boy, that's weird music. <laughs> but it also <laughs> reminds like this album reminds me a lot of like Thousand Swords Carpathian Wolves type shit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And this riff especially, it has this it's a very cool sort of brooding folk riff. Uh and it has it extends in a bizarre way. I think it's written in like tried counting it. It seems like it's in 16/8, but the eighth notes are all played as triplets. Yeah, it's very strange. There's um, some sort of like accidental, um, accidental polyrhythm going on. I, I'm not even sure it's accidental. Like that would have been difficult to count. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Would be and it, and and the fact it, that sort of bespoke or kind of what is it, um, isorhythmic thing, makes it like. Uh, you know, that gives it the quality of folk music being played detached from a drum kit. Yeah, yeah. Right? It has that weird wandering quality of authentic folk melody that was more tuned to song and pure melody. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so just very strange uh, and very cool. And then the record, the song just ends there. It's, it's, I th- it's literally two riffs. It doesn't need any more. It expresses um, everything it needs to. Yeah, uh, um, the, uh, yeah, so I think, I think that's what I have to say about that one, but that one is awesome. It basically is, is just, you know, this is sort of, oh, and the other big picture thing I wanted to say, I mean, this is really a great foil for Necropole in that the, these are both, Necropole is the, even shows the same absolute conviction, Right same sort of fanatic devotion to the art, but in this very mature, restrained, and sort of uh, restrained and uh, multifaceted way, right? It's There's like a stained glass cathedral look to that record. Um, this is uh, where uh, they're just all these mutually reinforcing parts uh, and crazy levels of detail. And this is that impulse at its most... And this is the same impulse, but it's rawest and most youthful. It's just absolute commitment to two riffs. Um, and if the Necropole record is sort of the the king in his realm, this is uh, the outlaw or the raider, the young wolf in the woods. And these guys are hungry. And instead of thinking too much about, uh, or not too much, instead of, you know, concerning themselves with, say, structure or whatever. So much of this is centered on the riffs and the immediate way that a couple riffs interact with each other. Yeah, it it has all that that sort of strident immediacy of both like traditional Scandinavian stuff as well as like like this really makes me reflect back on that that sort of 
that late 2000s CDR era that yeah. I'll talk about on oh, the show a lot. And they, they could have done a split with Cavern. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like in 2012 or whatever, right? Uh, but, um, yeah, so here here's my second one. Um, I got the first couple <coughs> songs, you got the later stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, um, this record, so... This record, so where where yoga has this kind of sublime repose, although I'm not sure I even really buy my own take on that anymore. <laughs> uh, um, this record is, yeah, there's there's a uh, it, it's pretty driving, and the motion is coming immediately from the riffs, and more than that, um, eh, yeah, I, I buy it. It, it. it it does not have what what does you say the sort of like distant confidence, mm-hmm. or whatever of the like. Right, yoga is yes. It's sort of um, it shows an effortlessness. This record is all under great emotional strain. You can feel that it is made by people who are being racked by passion, right? Uh, but it's not some sort of like uh, teenage bildungsroman. You're endlessly striving and never getting anywhere. You're always in the act of growing up, and it's not just like all-directional impotent angst it is fiercely directed uh and the interesting thing is that this record um there's some real drama in the structures it's it's not always just riff 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 uh and this song uh shows in a very simple very direct way there is tension and striving but there's finally actually attaining um, and let's start the sample just as the main riff reaches a false peak and tumbles down.
yeah, those are. But it, uh, again, you know, just like uh, the the boldness of that like insane elongated tapping lead yeah. at the yeah. end. <laughs> so the tapping stuff has got to be sort of past noir and the, the sort of like the whole you can do anything. And the whole, like, flourishing tapping thing, I think that's Pestuar stuff. Well, you can also get like, that directly from Gorgoroth on Antichrist. There's tap soloing? Dude, yeah. I mean, uh, on the self-titled song, one of the primary riffs is, like, an all-tapped riff. That, that like, really ostentatious one on Gorgoroth by Gorgoroth, yeah, there's, hmm. there's a big tapping riff on that one. Well, anyway, th- it seemed like the sort of unhinged tap stuff that happens on, like, the first Pest Noir record. Yeah. But, but like, there's something, there's something, to re- there's a tremendous freedom in that. We were talking about how Amartum in Necropol uh, has no preconceived notions about what you can and can't put in your song. Uh, this is another really good example. It's like... Hey, you know, what if we returned to the main riff and now we cut in front of the sound space with these really rough, needling, swarming arpeggios? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's um, uh, this, you know, this, this kind of has, like, it, although it sounds very different, that same sort of, like, slightly improvised quality that, like, Devil Groth has. I could, s- oh, I actually totally thought that when I was listening to this. I was, it's like, these are guys who have, like, learned all of the structural things from Blazeberth Hall, but the music doesn't sound like it at all. Yeah, like, yeah, I can Like, that, that climax could have been on the, the, the sort of um, fierce directedness in that climax could have been on uh, the Sternatus record that came out last year. Yeah, well, yeah, I could see that. Whatever your opinions on Blazeberth Hall-related drama. Ah, <laughs> um, uh, the um, ah, uh, it's um, and it has the weirdness of the very earliest Blazeberth Hall stuff, like fucking, you know, uh, just the the most bizarre early Branicald or like Rundegor recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's um, this is uh, this is this record is um. Although it has a lot of the mel- mel- uh, the melodic sensibility and harmonies and the riffing styles we associate with French black metal, and some of the the soaring moods and the and the uh, also as you say the sort of misery, <laughs> um, uh, it it French black metal often gets flattened into sort of pleasant and uh, you know pleasant music, uh, and this is extreme metal. Um, first and foremost. Uh, and anyway, the thing I really wanted to say about that build-up, though, is, like, um, that method of uh, huge build that's driven by lead work is, like, Pagan Hellfire. Mm-hmm. Um, the riff Solidarity has a couple huge songs, including the title track, that just function around these soaring, spiraling leads that just keep going and keep going and keep going, and then boom. Uh, the, um... Except the interesting thing about this song is that once it hits the climax, that's just it. Uh, and the the point is that the maximum of energy is in the striving for it, right? Uh, and, and they do a really subtle setup, too. 
when they go into that escalating part, there's also a very pagan hellfire or sort of stompy part with these weirdly disharmonized leads. Uh, those kind of like, um, this kind of like ugly, uh, that kind of abrasive lead work is also pretty pagan hellfire, um, and the stompiness of it. Um, uh, and he's got the bass chasing the guitars in a really cool way. Yeah. Um, there's a, which there's you'll a, talk about. Yeah. I'll talk about it because mm-hmm. the bass work on this mm-hmm. album is really yeah. good and uh, really interesting. But, but yeah, so b- basically it's, um, th- when they come out of that scronky part, they suddenly introduce a riff that is very similar to the main riff, but is much more sort of, uh, um, instead of having this tense, longing, striving, it's like a soaring, overcoming, triumphant, like mighty riff, right? And then they switch that riff into the original striving riff and drop the spiraling arpeggios over it. And the song hits its peak, mission accomplished, wow, 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 spiral out, done. Um, yeah, this is definitely a record where the... Uh... <coughs> The all the this this is one of those black metal records where all the songs extend infinitely in either mm-hmm. direction yes. on either side of the track time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so my samples are going to emphasize uh, probably the uh, I don't know the the more directly sad sounding stuff. There's a big streak of DSBM on this, and I I, I don't think they would be shy about telling you that. Um, so I want to go to Faux espoirs, if I'm yeah. pronouncing that F- correctly. False hopes. Yeah. It's in the song titles, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is uh, probably my favorite track on the record. And this is where the sort of understated sophistication of this band really starts to speak for itself. Um, in contrast to the first couple tracks that are based off these like really kind of snapping uh contrasting compositional techniques this is a lot smoother and more contiguous but they still manage to pack a lot of really cool stuff into that texture
boom, that that whole fucking section, this whole track is just a marvel. That the second riff on this song is just like an all-timer riff. With that that enormous just dive down the fretboard and then ending in this like almost mutilation inspired um, sort of uh, suspended chord at the end. It's just, it's so fucking beautiful. And and that's the kind of riff you can only write between the ages of 16 and 23, you know, if you, or, and you can only have played guitar for a certain amount of time because you will, you will overcomplicate it and get in the way of it. After a few years. Oh, holy fuck, man. That's so good. The the sense of time in it is so... Yeah, Yeah. the the slide is really built into that riff. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Uh... It really sweeps up words like a glissando. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just beautiful, and that that whole that that whole arrangement is beautiful. And there's like subtle shit that goes on, like um, recontextualizing the the synth intro uh, against a different riff, um, like halfway through the song at the end of that sample is like. A simple kind of motivic technique, but I can tell you right now, back when we were 19, 19-year-olds didn't do that. You know, we, <laughs> we, we didn't fucking know how to do that shit. So basically, the, the average, one thing to keep in mind is just the average level of sophistication of, like, the younger musicians we see is just, like, way ahead of a lot of what we had back then. Um, I'm not, it's not necessarily better or worse, but all these kids are just way more informed than they used to be. Um, but I really like uh, bringing this song to the table in contrast to your two, uh, which which mm-hmm. really emphasize sort of the the hardest edged and um, most dissonant and most high contrast parts of the record versus this other much more chilled out and very very fucking sad mode that sort of take that is the other half of the equation here. Yeah, and yet, as you know, as you talked about, there's also a really stern and, even though the song is called False Hope, there is a stern and resolute hope, even in that crushingly sad riff we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> du, 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 bu, du. Um, uh, yeah, did, should I get into the stuff we were talking about during the sample? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, well, so there's something here where, like, uh... This record, uh, the song titles, I I was saying at the beginning, there's something about the sort of deliberate ironies of the record, right? You have this happy cover, and then the music as well. It's a lot of things, but it's not blissed out. Um, uh, And you, uh, the song titles have this sort of, they sort of bounce different moods off each other, and sometimes contrast even with the content of the song. I don't know, so like, uh, I don't know, first one, heresy, that's easy enough, right? That's just like, okay, uh, you know, confrontation, conflict, breaching with breaching with convention. And it's also just a nod to the Norwegians, right? And you can hear that musically. Second one is abode, how do I do this? Abode de souffle, which is means breathless. It's the name of a Godard film, but I doubt that's what they're referencing, at least, you know, uh, at least on... They might be referencing it ironically, but I doubt that's what the song is about. Um, 
But, you know, sort of breathlessness, excitement, maybe, but also stifling of breath, maybe also anxiety and tension. Uh, next one, yeah, uh, false hopes, right? And false hopes has some of the most beautiful sprawling melodies on the record, right? Interlude, then track six is, which is very aggressive, uh, maybe not one of the most successful riffs, but very aggressive dark track is called To Truly Live. <laughs> um, then there's one called Seven, uh, the more elegant one called The Sad Lie. And then finally we get to United Esprit Uni, right? I, I don't know, United Spirits. Um, this is... The record seems to really speak to part of the unique mood we've been trying to get our wrap our heads around is that this is zoomer black metal um and it's about the and and, and their relationship to the land and to france uh is different from that of uh gen x or black metal musicians um so if you can hear in the kind of um In the kind of wild anger and extremely oppositional nature, and also just very deliberate trolling of the Norwegian bands and a lot of, you know, a lot of the Swedes and then, you know, the 90s French and certainly the Poles or whatever, there's this, um, there's this sense, th there's cool dudes in the metal scene or also weirdo nerds in the metal scene getting the sense that their country is being pulled out from under their feet, right? And they are lashing out with uh, with rage, and also with this kind of like this kind of like um, you know uh, cruel jests, right? Provocation, opposition, uh, confrontation, and uh, there's a. Um, this record is a little bit different. This record, it feels like they grow up in a France that's already gone. They feel the country to have already gone out from under their feet. And yet, at the same time, they feel no... There's an incredible solidity and groundedness to it. It's almost like, uh, well, we know uh, things have changed in a kind of... Uh, very conclusive way or think things have changed in this pervasive way we are not growing up in idyllic rural france and yet for that we look for what is solid and what is enduring here which is the land and as you say right once they know the land the land reveals its terrible majesty and they are regrounded in the place it's it's almost like there's there's less anger here and there's more of a sense of I don't know in another way this is like the cavern and a different but in a very different way this is quite assured music they feel disinherit completely dispossessed and disinherited and yet completely at home 